Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm with Terry Fakes this week and we are going through another book of the Bible. We're going through, depending on if you're reading the English version or the Hebrew version, right. we're either going through two books or half a book today. And that is what we call First and Second Samuel, the heart of the narrative in the Old Testament. But before we get going, I want to thank everybody for their questions a couple weeks ago in the Q&A podcast. We are definitely going to do another one of those in September. So send in questions either through social media or email info at sowespeak.com. We'd love to get your questions. Typically answer them before we answer on the podcast, but love to also answer on the podcast. So if you have questions, if this podcast episode uh, gives you a lot of questions, which maybe it will, go ahead and send those in and uh, we will collect them for our next Q&A episode. So today we're going to be moving through First and Second Samuel. And like I mentioned, in the Hebrew Bible, this is the heart of the narrative of the people of Israel. So First mm-hmm. and Second Kings and, and First and Second Samuel are one book with four sections, if right. you will, in the Hebrew canon. In fact, it's just called Books of Kingdoms. And these are First and Second Kingdoms. And mm-hmm. it really chronicles the move from Judges up through the exile. And this is a this is a big span of time in years, but it's also a huge span of time in the history of Israel. This is when Israel finally begins to occupy the land. They have the kings of Israel. King David appears on the scene. Elijah appears on the scene. This is a really uh, fundamental portion of the history of Israel. So like we typically do, and I think this is even more important in a narrative book like First and Second Samuel, let's begin to situate this not just in biblical history, but in the broader historical context of what was going on in the world at this time. Well, let's, first of all, First and Second Samuel is going to cover a very specific span of years from about 1050 BC when Saul became king until 970 BC when Solomon became king. So the reign, you have the prophet Samuel, the reign of Saul, the reign of David are covered in these two particular books. And then, of course, it seamlessly goes on with the narrative in the Hebrew scriptures. So we're looking about an 80-year period. And really what's happening here is right before this, you have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a very tribal time in the history of Israel. If you remember, they let's use traditional dates. They came into the Promised Land about 1400, and Joshua leads them in, and they begin to battle. They're only somewhat successful, and they stake out some little tribal areas in some of the less desirable real estate. And for about 400 years, they have some heroes that come, uh, rise up, and some judges of the nation, but they're living a very tribal existence. First and Second Samuel spans the tribal existence to the monarchy, a united nation. So, for example, when this book starts, the last verse of the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what he thought was right. And when First and Second Samuel ends, David has conquered their enemies, consolidated them into really a nation, united the tribes together. So First and Second Samuel, over about an 80-year period, chronicles a huge transition for the Israelites. Yeah, one of the things that we're going to 
go back to as we look at First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Judges is this way to an extent as well, are the literary features of these narratives. And so one of the things that you have to be sensitive to in reading the Bible, especially if you're on a Bible reading plan where you're jumping from things like a narrative to wisdom literature, gospels mm-hmm. to epistles, you have apocalypse sprinkled throughout, you have poetry sprinkled throughout, prophecy sprinkled throughout. One of the difficulties there is understanding genre for what these books are trying to do. So we we both believe that the books of the Bible, the authors of the Bible, both uh, the human author and the spiritual author, the Holy Spirit, are doing things through these texts. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, narratives do different things than epistles do, for example. When Paul writes, he's typically writing in a more educational way. There's commands, there's straightforward descriptions of things that are going on. In a narrative, things are a little bit more adjacent to the educational takeaway. So one of the things that we want to avoid is falling into one of two extremes. On the one hand, we don't want to go so far in the literary direction that we treat this book like it has nothing to do with history on the one hand and nothing to do with spiritual truth on the other hand. These are just great stories and they have themes and character development that you can get carried away with that. On the other hand, we don't want to strip these stories of what they actually are to the extent that we read them like Aesop's fables and we're just looking for a little moral of the story Mm. and that's the takeaway. One of the problems with doing that, and this is very easy to do, especially if you're teaching, is you want to work towards what the theme or the moral of the story is. But the problem with that is there may be morals to this story, but if it was just a moral that we were after, this book would be written like Proverbs instead of being written like it is, which is a narrative, a long narrative. So we don't want to strip the text of what we've been given by God in order to produce something that's easier for us to handle or easier to teach or less difficult to interpret. We really want to preserve the text as it is. And what we've been given in First and Second Samuel is a group of narratives, stories about characters, characters who are both good examples and bad examples. So it's, it's almost impossible to answer the question, is Saul a good or bad example? Is he a good or bad character? Well, he's a complicated character. There are bad things that he does. There are good things that he does. He shows the life cycle of somebody who starts out well and finishes poorly. You know, we want to look at this thing holistically. So at the same time, we want to be able to dive into individual verses, which Mm -hmm. is harder to do in narrative. So one of the things we got to keep an eye on when we read books like 1 and 2 Samuel is the units of thought. There's a big unit of thought. First, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings is one big unit of thought. The First and Second Samuel section is a thought. Individual narratives are a thought, and we want to keep those relatively closely connected in our minds. That's why I would suggest if you're going to study these books, sit down and read as much of it as you can right. all the way through. I don't think you can make it probably through First and Second Samuel in one sitting unless you're willing to do a marathon. <laughs> But if you're going to teach this book, I would highly recommend, or if you're just going to study it in depth, I would highly recommend setting aside a week or two weeks to read through the entire narrative before you come back and study each individual section. 
And one of the reasons I say that, and I think we're going to get into this, is there are thematic elements in, in literature, in narratives like this, that take longer to develop than a chapter of Ephesians, for example. Right. Now, the context there is exactly. important, too, but it's just quicker to get to the point. So one of the things we need to talk about at the beginning of First and Second Samuel is, what do we think some of these themes are? And so you've kicked us off with the historical and the, and the, the canonical theme of we're coming out of absolute chaos in Israel. And the story opens with a continuation of what we've seen from the Moses story all the way through Judges up until now. So if you're reading this canonically, you start out and you're starting to get some clues in these opening paragraphs as to what's in store in the next season of Israel. Exactly. You, I like what you said about the narrative. On the one hand, it is a book of history. And when I say that, what I mean is it, on the surface, is claiming to tell you what happened. It will occasionally tell you why it happened. But generally speaking, narrative is there to tell you what happened. And there are certain literary devices that we'll see because these stories are so brilliantly crafted. And when I say story, I don't mean made-up story. I mean, they're telling you the story of what actually happened. But as you see, because God architects history, there are themes running underneath this. Now, a good author making up a fiction story might be smart enough to tell you a story, and then underneath it, there might be a moral or a theme. This is real history that God is architecting that has these morals or these themes. And you're right, it is a transitional period. But as you get into the pieces of it, like you said, First and Second Samuel is a literary unit. But if you break it down, for example, the first 15 chapters chronicle the rise of Samuel. And Samuel is the one that introduces monarchy. He's God's prophet or means to anoint Saul to be the first king. And then picking up in 1 Samuel 16, all the way into 2 Samuel 5, you get the story of David and his interaction with Saul, his becoming king himself. And so you get these story units inside it. One of the interesting things here, I'll talk about Samuel and then maybe kick it to you to talk about Saul and David. But if you think about Samuel being the mechanism that God uses, God goes into a great bit of detail about Samuel's life, and there's huge significance. I mean, 1 Samuel opens with a woman who's in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. Hannah, Samuel's mother, is barren, unable to bear a child. That's a theme throughout the whole Bible and the Old Testament and God's providence and God's special choosing. And so you see Samuel comes in as an archetype of someone who is given by God's particular command and anointed by God or chosen by God for a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. And so the story of Samuel himself becomes part of the story that Samuel's going to participate in. But probably some of the greatest themes come in the two complex characters, Saul and David. Mm -hmm. I think there's a temptation to either say, Saul was all bad, David's all good. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Saul was a good guy who got a raw deal, and David was a conniving little guy who mm -hmm. ended up working well. And, and I don't think either one of those portraits is correct. Right. So what do you think about those characters? Well... They are the central characters of this portion of history. And mm -hmm. it's, it's funny to step back and think about how much was going on in Israel and how focused this narrative is. We essentially learn about a couple dozen people right. in a land of, we don't know exactly, but let's say 
between one and two million Israelites in the Promised right. Land. And th- that's the historical task, no matter if you're writing scripture or if you're just writing a great biography. But one of the commitments that Christians have is that history has divinely ordained meaning to it. Mm-hmm. And so not only does Samuel have meaning in his life, and he's figuring this out as he goes. Right. This is one of the things about reading biblical history is it all looks nice and tidy in hindsight. And our lives look very undetermined if right. you're looking at it in the future. Their lives looked exactly the same way at the time. Samuel didn't know that he, when he, when he was with Eli, just training to be a priest, that he was going to anoint the king of exactly. Israel. David didn't know that when he was a shepherd boy that he was going to be the greatest king of Israel. Saul didn't know when he was anointed that it was going to end terribly wrong right. for him and for his family. So we want to read with that in mind, knowing that God is guiding history, but it's not as obvious at the time to the characters as it is to us when we're reading, in the same way that it's not as obvious to us when we're living our lives what God's going to do in the end. Right. Now, one of the things that's important in reading biblical history and biblical literature is typology. So you can get crazy with this. They call this parallelomania uh, in some circles, <laughs> where you see so many parallels and so many types, and you can get so many layers deep that you forget to actually study the Bible. You just study the types and anti-types right. and anti-anti-types and all the reversals. But but I do think that typology is a very important skill to develop when you're reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the things that, uh, that narratives do is they repeat certain storylines with slightly different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Or they'll give a description of a character that is basically the same as one before with one significant detail changed mm-hmm. or missing. So a great example of this from First and Second Kings, for example, which we're going to cover in the next episode, is the description of the prophet Elijah. Right. You see Elijah, he is very interesting. He and Elisha both have very interesting dress. They're wearing camel skin. They have a leather belt. They eat honey. And all of a sudden in the New Testament, you see this prophet show up on the scene. Mm-hmm. And he's wearing a camel skin tunic. And he's wearing a leather belt. And he's eating locusts and honey. And you think to yourself, I know a lot about this person just from that description. Right. He is the heir of Elijah. And if you're paying attention to the end of Malachi, you realize Elijah's going to come before the Christ comes. So then when you see that happen, you say, we should be expecting the Christ to come. Right. So there's all these themes and types and and uh, what it requires is a working knowledge of other stories in the Bible mm-hmm. to pick up on the themes. That's why Bible reading is a lifelong process right. because you're not going to get all of it on the first time through. That's right. why you reread the Bible over and over and over again. And sure enough, First Samuel and Second Samuel are full of these types. Every character we're introduced to, the main characters at least, probably all of them, if mm-hmm. we're honest, have typological references to other stories in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting thing. I'd love to know what you think about this. I wonder if that's the way that God has told his story. Obviously, it's true in history. Right. But is that the way that God has told his story to make points to us, for example? This is an oral culture, storytelling. God orchestrates history in a way that he's showing consistency and patterns. Or is there something about God's nature for example, let's take the number three or the number seven. That's a significant number in First and Second Samuel, right. obviously in the New Testament, obviously the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. Is 
that just a shorthand to help us understand what's going on? Or is there something about the number seven that God just happens to really like? In fact, it's just part of his character (laughs) Uh to do things in sevens. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's really an interesting question. Uh, I I don't know, obviously, in terms of is the text definitive about that. I tend to lean just an opinion that God uses those mechanisms as tools to speak to us, just like he uses typology as a tool to speak to us. We learn, uh, you have a granddaughter who's one year old and watching her learn, you quickly realize, I'm sure you already knew this, but you see it over again, how imitative we are and that the learning we do, at least at that level, is purely imitation. We imitate stories Mm -hmm. And we love to see recurring themes and patterns. We are pattern-recognizing creatures. We are Mm -hmm. created to recognize patterns. And so I think, uh, again, just an opinion, is that God could have picked the number 12 Mm -hmm. if he wanted. But the point is it needs to show up over and over. It needs to connect what seem to be unrelated events to us. Mm -hmm. What you just talked about is a great example of if you were living in history during the time of Elijah, you just would have thought that dude just does not dress well. Right. And he is pretty crazy, but boy, he's got some serious faith. And then as you go along and here comes John the Baptist and you realize, oh, I already know this story. Mm -hmm. You're introducing it to me again. So I'm not sure that that's part of the nature of God or God adapting his story to the nature of us. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Either way, I think it's helpful to us. And I Mm -hmm. think it is a feature of Scripture that you should keep in mind as you're reading. So just for example, as you open the book of 1 Samuel and you start to read, there's a man in uh, Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, if you've been reading your Bible reading plan, okay, if you're going in either chronological order or if you're going through the scriptures in uh, Genesis through Revelation, you have seen this phrase, hill country of Ephraim, a lot of times. And you start to think to yourself, okay, what do I know about the hill country of Ephraim? Well, going all the way back to Ephraim, we know that he is part of the double portion of blessing that was given to Joseph. So Joseph is the favorite son. He's sent to Egypt. He is kind of the pathfinder that goes. He ends up saving his family, spoiler alert. And uh, they move to Egypt and they are brought out of Egypt by the plagues and everything. You think, okay, Ephraim is one of the two tribes that comes from Joseph. Right. You also think of the fact that during Judges, a lot of things happen in the hill country of Ephraim. It's a big area, and it's a very important area. Mm -hmm. The other thing that might resonate with you is this is the land of Caleb. So Caleb, one of the two faithful spies, you have Joshua, you have Caleb, they're sent into the land. Everybody else is like, there are giants there. This is not probably a good idea. And Caleb and Joshua are faithful to say... Our God is bigger than these guys, and Mm -hmm. he's commanded us, he's promised us this land, we should go get it. Well, at the end of Caleb's life, I just love this, they should make this into a movie or a Netflix series or something. The end of Caleb's life, one of the things that you see is he goes off to conquer this unruly hill country in Ephraim. Mm -hmm. There are still giants around, and he goes, and his son slays one of them. And it's another adventure for Caleb, which at this point, he's like 80 years old going off to this new... He actually asks if he can go off into this land and settle it with his family. So one of the things that you should be thinking in 1 Samuel is, okay, hill country of Ephraim, 
This land has a rich history. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of Caleb, who is faithful in adversity. He was the one who went off to believe God's promises when nobody else was going to. Right. That should be an indication for some things that are about to come in the book of 1 Samuel. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what's going to happen. Right. Samuel is going to find himself in a very hostile situation. It just so happens to be a hostile situation where he is living with a priest and his sons. Right. But he's going to be faithful when everybody else is unfaithful. He's Mm -hmm. going to continue that cycle that starts with the people of Israel. It starts with Joseph. It goes through Caleb. Now we've got another person. All the way back to Abraham, 2000 BC, the one faithful man that believed God. Yes. Another one. And we could do a hundred of these. You just learn this as you learn the Bible. And every time I read the Bible, and I'm sure every time you read the Bible, you start to see new ones of these. Mm -hmm. Another one that comes to mind is once you get halfway through this chapter, you see that we have more family problems. We have more marital issues between (laughs) Elkanah, who is Samuel's father, and his wife, Hannah. Hannah is barren. And the moment you read that, you should think, there are a lot of barren women in scripture. Mm -hmm. And typically when this happens, they call out to God God answers. He's merciful on them. And typically when that happens, their sons are very significant characters in the Bible. Right. So you think the most immediate one is Isaac. You think about Isaac. Sure. Abraham and Sarah are barren. They cry out to God. God promises them a son. They don't do it very well. But finally, they Mm -hmm. end up fulfilling God's promise with Isaac, and he is hugely significant. The same thing is going to happen here. Hannah is a demonstration of the power of a praying mom, the power of a praying wife. I, I, I think this story is so amazing and so rich. I think it's a great text for people to preach um, all the time. It's especially a good text to preach on Mother's Day. Right. Because it is what sets this entire story in motion mm-hmm. is this loving mom. And I think one of the things that's overlooked, I haven't heard anybody ever preach on this, is in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. It tells this little story about how Hannah... After she gives Samuel to Eli, who's the priest, Mm. she gets to visit him once a year, which had to be just heart wrenching. Right. But when she does, it says he she would she would make him she would knit him a little robe and take it each year as he's growing. He's outgrowing these robes, and every year she brings a new robe for him. Uh It's just there's a lot of texture in these stories. Right. And there are a lot of ways that you're going to see these similar themes show up again and again and again and again throughout the Bible. The last point I want to make about this opening section is a stylistic tool that is harder to recognize um, if you're not doing pretty close study, but is important. Beginnings and endings in the Bible, especially in narratives, are really, really instructive. So in the technical term for this is a chiasm. So a chiasm is just named after the letter X, the letter chi. And it basically means when you have something at the beginning and you have something similar at the end, you should look in the middle for something very significant. Mm -hmm. Would you expand on that definition at all? No, that is absolutely perfect. I uh, was reading this morning, in fact, in Psalm uh, 42 and Psalm 42 has a, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 55. I'm sorry. It was in Isaiah. And there's a beautiful example of chiasm there and what is, uh, stuck in the middle of it. Uh, for example, God says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts and your thoughts. So mm-hmm. you start with thoughts, ways, the heavens and the earth, the order, and then ways, thoughts. It's just the little X, like you said, and you're right. Look for what's in the middle because that's what everything is leading up to. Mm-hmm. So that's a simple uh, two verses. Right. You're talking about a whole literary unit that mm-hmm. kind of moves in that way downwards and back upwards, if you right. want to think of it that yeah, way. Yeah, you can see it in verses. You can see it in sentences. This mm-hmm. is a very Hebrew way of expressing an idea. Exactly. But it's not just Hebrew. This, this is something you could see in Cicero, for example, is this is a way that people speak that's easy to remember. It's easy right. to make your point this way. Winston Churchill, for example, spoke in chiasms. So he says, we shape our buildings and thereafter our buildings shape us. Right. It's a great technique for an oral culture, for speaking, but it's also a great technique to give your reader a sense of where the really important parts are, either Mm -hmm. of a couple of sentences or, in this case, of entire books, for example. So if you notice, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah begins with a song. So she, she sings a song, "'My heart exalts to the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord.'" And back to our typology, for example, if you read this song of Hannah, you're probably going to think about another song that is very similar to this (laughs) song. And it is the song that Mary sings Uh in Luke, which is called the Magnificat. There are quotes taken from these two songs. And it's also very similar to the song of Moses, which you see him sing when they're walking out of Egypt into the Promised Land. The other thing you'll notice, though, is as you get towards the end of the book of 2 Samuel, there's another very significant song. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter, or in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, David speaks, sings a song. He actually uh-huh. ends up teaching it to the people of Israel later uh, about God and his faithfulness. And so you have this full circle faithfulness of God in these two songs. And one of the things that you notice is in the middle of the book, and I think probably the most significant portion, is on the one hand the anointing of David as king, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And then also at the very end of 1 Samuel, you're going to see the death of Saul, which is the end of one epic, and it is the beginning of another. So one of the big themes that you see in First and Second Samuel is the provision of God. Hannah sings about it in the beginning. God is my rock. He's provided for me. He's heard my prayer. He's given me a son. And that son is going to bring about the promise of Israel. Samuel is mm-hmm. going, to, he's going to anoint Saul king. David at the end is saying, God has provided. He has given me a kingdom. He's triumphed over our enemies. He's fought for us. He's led us into the promised land like he promised. But in the middle, there is a point of tension. Mm -hmm. What happens when your first king doesn't turn out the way that you thought? Right. And he dies. That's the tension of the story. That middle component where David is anointed, but he's not king yet. One of the things that we see in, in, in 1 Samuel is... David is anointed even before he slays Goliath. Right. And he waits a very long time from the time that he's promised to be king to the time he actually takes the throne. And most of the time he is not treated like a king. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's not until that significant event of Saul's death in battle where everything looks like it's teetering on the edge of And, and indeed loss. it was. Right. 
for the Israelites that God provides and David becomes king. So that's just a literary feature that you can look at, you can see some patterns, you can start to uncover some of the major themes of the book if you keep an eye out for things like types, chiasms, literary movements. You don't have to be an English major here. Right. But just learning different ways that the Hebrew scriptures communicate to us is a really helpful way to begin reading passages like First and Second Samuel. Yeah, it used to be popular to observe uh, that, you know, this movement to the medium is the message. And, you know, we become a kind of a shallow culture since the 60s and 70s when that was coined. In the Bible, the medium, the way of telling it, the genre, is not the message, but it definitely is part of bringing out the meaning of the message. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for these other things happening, you would just be reading a nice history book that told you this happened, then that happened, then that happened. But the way it is told... And in fact, the way it actually happens is part of giving you the significance of what's going on. Very true. And and as we've emphasized, you can't say this enough, you get better at that right. as you read. Just by reading more and reading widely. Right. I mean, you, as you pointed out, you learn a little bit more the next time you read First and Second Samuel because you've read the New Testament. And all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but I'm a kind of a low-watt bulb sometimes, but every now and then the light bulb goes on and goes, wait a minute, I've seen this story before. And those connecting moments are some of the most powerful faith builders for me. Mm-hmm. So after Samuel is established as the prophet of Israel... He's also the final judge of Israel, so he mm-hmm. has this dual role of authority to judge. It's not like a king necessarily, but it is a, a, an authority position in Israel. And he is also a mouthpiece for God's word to the people of Israel. He is chosen to anoint the king. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, I always want to point this out, that I've always wondered, when we were looking through the kings of England, for example, through that whole period of history... You know, some of those guys had such egos, I thought, who is qualified to crown the king? Mm-hmm. And in those stories, you see emissaries of God crowning the king because that's the only thing over them. I mean, think about it. Even Gandalf crowns Aragon in mm-hmm. the uh, exactly Lord right. of the Rings. But here, in order to crown or anoint Saul and David, you need God's chosen one as the authority to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a nice interplay. We'll get this really, really uh, starkly in 1st and 2nd Kings that the role of the messenger of God is actually the main character. It's easy to think, Mm -hmm. partially because it's called 1st and 2nd Kings, that the kings are the main characters. And they do take up a lot of the limelight. But the main characters of First and Second Kings, and I would argue for First and Second Samuel, uh-huh. are not the kings. The main characters are the prophets. What's interesting about First and Second Samuel versus First and Second Kings is they follow a pattern of unwinding through this long narrative mm-hmm. from First Samuel to the end of Second Kings. You get almost a spiritual entropy going throughout Israel. Not only do the kings get worse, not only do they get more worldly. But in the beginning, the king and the prophet are united. So you see Samuel, who is exercising uh, not a kingly role per se, but an authority over the people, and he is a prophet. Saul 
misjudges this relationship. So one of the things you see Saul mm-hmm. do is he disobeys the voice of God. He oversteps his bounds. Right. And uh, he does not wait for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice to be the priestly role. Mm-hmm. And he's he punished for it. that role. Yeah. David unites these roles. He is a prophet and he is a king. And after that, you do not see this again in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. You see people usurp in the same way that Saul does. You see people abandon one role over the other, but you see God call both roles. So Elijah and Elisha step in uh-huh. to be the, the prophet for very ungodly kings. And so this relationship between the word of the Lord on the one hand which I think is the main driver in all of these stories, and the exercise of authority and power on the other, which is the kings Mm -hmm. of Israel, it doesn't go well when those two things are out of sorts. Right. And from a worldly standpoint, it looks like the kings are the main subject. Mm -hmm. But what we're reminded of through the text is it's always the prophet. It's always the word of God that actually ends up coming out victorious in the end. Mm-hmm. So to go back to the chapter that you cited earlier from Isaiah 55, God promises that his word will not return void. Right. And the work of the prophets, even though they're not treated very well, does not return void. The work of the kings does. Right. At the end, the, the end of the second kings is political disaster. Mm-hmm. They're conquered. They're moved out of the promised land. It's from Egypt to Egypt. That's how you That's characterize exactly right. the whole movement from, from Exodus to second mm-hmm. kings. You came out of Egypt. And you came into the land, you were unfaithful, now you're going back to Egypt. So uh, they get exiled, Jeremiah is carried into Egypt, Uh, the word of the Lord departs from the promised land. Now, let's talk about Saul. Um, And I can't even imagine how many sermon titles are are, uh, better call Saul when you get to this portion of 1 and 2 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is anointed king. What should we know about Saul? Well, that's, uh, you know, one of the interesting things to me about Saul is uh, that Saul is an unlikely king. I mean, in one sense, Saul is a big strapping guy. He has the worldly appearance of a guy that ought to be king. I mean, unlike David, who has just the opposite. He's the youngest. He's not that big. He's not the handsome, strapping guy. And yet, you see, get an insight into Saul's character when he's hiding in the baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, so he has what the world would consider to be a great king, but you get an early indication that he may not have inside what it takes to be king. Yeah, he has the external description of a king, uh-huh. but he does not have the internal fortitude. There's a really interesting comparison. Again, this is this is that typology working uh, to remind you of things, to signal things to come, foreshadowing. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when we're introduced to Saul, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror. They give his old genealogy. A Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son named Saul, a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. He's very strong, strapping. Mm -hmm. He should be a good soldier. He does end up being a decent soldier. And then we see him pretty quickly hiding. And the description 
is very similar, especially that he's a Benjaminite, especially that he's hiding uh-huh. to the story of Gideon, for example, exactly. in the book of Judges, who tells God he is from the weakest tribe, he's from the weakest family in the weakest tribe. Oh, right. And you get this little variation on the story. Saul is from the weakest tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He is the strongest person in that tribe. Like you said, he changes just one thing from the story of Gideon. Yeah, and whereas the story of Gideon tells us about a person who defies the odds Uh by trusting God, Saul is the reverse story. Mm -hmm. Instead of being inwardly strong and outwardly weak, he is outwardly strong and inwardly weak. He ends up forsaking the role that God gives him, and he ends up having the kingdom taken from him and from his sons. Mm-hmm. So you get introduced to Saul, and it's promising at the beginning. And in fact, the best thing that Saul does is one chapter after he gets anointed king. The high point for Saul is in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. He crushes a serpent. Every time you see this in the Bible, uh-huh. you should think about Genesis chapter 3. God promises that the Messiah will crush the head of the serpent. Typically through the Bible, and this happens a lot, you see a lot more serpent crushing than you think. Mm-hmm. This is a sign of God's favor. For example, you're going to see Saul do this. You're going to see David do this. The description of Goliath later on is very serpentine. He has scale armor, for example. Uh, you're going to see, um, you're going to see Josiah do this. You're mm-hmm. going to see Hezekiah do this. I mean, every time you see a snake, and you see someone kill the snake, typically you think, okay, this person is doing God's will. Mm-hmm. So early in the story, Saul really is doing God's will. Oh yeah. This Nahash, which the word in Hebrew Nahash is the word for snake. So later you're going to see Nehushtan, that is the idol that's made out of the golden snake. Uh And Saul kills this guy. So you're like, bam, serpent slayer. That's good. And everything else is downhill from there. Mm -hmm. So Saul, his undoing, as we've already mentioned, is the fact that he doesn't actually trust God. Right. God is a concern. It's a periphery concern for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He usurps the roles. He does not obey the commands. He actually later stands in direct opposition of the plan of God when he tries to kill David. And this is going to contrast with the humble beginnings of David and the faithfulness later on in his life. Mm -hmm. So what happens to Saul? Well, Saul, uh, basically, as you said, he, he, you know, when I read this, I get one sense, I get the idea that Saul is in over his head, his internal weakness. He can't control his men. And so they take... Uh, treasure from the enemies that they're not supposed to take. Uh, He can't control himself and his own anxiety, so he makes a sacrifice before Samuel gets there. And so I think you see this inner uh, weakness in Saul coming out. But David is also weak, and yet he doesn't do these things. And so I think when Saul goes inside himself and opens the door to the cupboard, if you will, He doesn't find any of the shelves stocked with faith Mm -hmm. or confidence in God. All he can find there is insecurity in himself. David, little guy, bold, when he opens it, think of him and Goliath. What does he say? He doesn't say, I'm going to kill you because I'm just a great slinger. He says, you know, you will learn today that there is a God in Israel. Mm -hmm. And so when he opened the cupboard, he found some faith. And I think... 
uh, inside Saul, there just wasn't that faith in God. He was God was a peripheral issue to him. I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that we see previewed as a theme for the book, and then cemented at the end. If you read Hannah's song in First Samuel chapter two, verse nine, she says, "He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might." shall a man prevail. Right. And that is the story of Saul and David, mm-hmm. is not by might. And you see this as a theme throughout the entire Old Testament. Not by might, but by my spirit, God mm-hmm. says. And that's exactly what happens with Saul and David. Saul is all might, no spirit. And David is spirit that empowers his might. Because exactly. you might be saying, well, hold on a second. David comes onto the scene as a mighty warrior. David is mighty. Yes, but the source of David's mightiness is the Spirit of God rather than what it is for Saul, which is physical capabilities, uh, his ability to to triumph over people in war, and that ultimately becomes his undoing. So there's so much that we could talk about here Mm -hmm. in these individual stories. We can't go through this like we can in the New Testament and some of those letters and cover almost everything, but... As we get to the story of David, we see someone who is an example of faithfulness, of trust, of triumph in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And there's several really interesting logistical things that happen in David's life. For example, he conquers the Jebusites. Right. He purchases the threshing floor. He conquers the city of Jerusalem. And that's going to be the place where his son builds the temple later on. And God is going to make an eternal covenant with David. And that's one of the things, too, that we see when you have a barren woman and she has a son, you should expect a covenant to be coming soon. Mm -hmm. That's just what happens. That's just the way it works. So we see God make a covenant with David that a a son of David will be on the throne forever. And one of the things that's really interesting at the end of 2 Kings is you you have a cliffhanger. You think, how is a son of David going to be on this throne? And God provides, and he's faithful. Um, but by the time we get to the end of 2 Samuel, things are going really well in Israel. Things are going well for David. Things are going well for the people. He has triumphed over his enemies. We get this golden age of Israel. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to see that extend into the reign of Solomon. And that's going to take place in, in First and Second Kings. But this is about as good as it gets for Israel. This is the high point. You go from the low point of... Uh, obviously slaves, exodus, get to the promised land, go into the promised land, and a half-hearted faith gives them a half-hearted result, so to speak. And here they are stuck as tribes looking around for just some way to eke out a living. And by the time Samuel ends, you have literally the golden age. David has defeated all the enemies around them, the Philistines and all these enemies around them. You have Jerusalem, which is you know God's chosen city, and He's given it to David to conquer that, and they are at their their zenith, and so there's kind of a uh, inverted V into this as you come from the tribal period of the judges up to David and Solomon, and then through the book of First and Second Kings, you wind yourself back down to the unfaithful result of exile again. Well, before we conclude the book. 
since we don't have time to go through everything, is there a story or a passage or a feature of First and Second Samuel that you've always really loved or something that sticks out to you? There is, and it's probably not something anybody else would like because I, I love all kinds of things about David's life. But I want to pick on Jonathan for a minute. Uh, and I don't want to necessarily talk about Jonathan as David's uh, blood brother, you know, as close friend. He was. And Saul, he knew that Saul, his father, was wrong, and he helped David even, you know, uh, to rescue him from his father. But at the end of the day, when Saul is fighting the Philistines and he is killed on Mount Gilboa, his sons, including Jonathan, are there with him. Mm-hmm. And so Jonathan, to me, is a, is a, is a character who honors God who is incredibly loyal, not only to David, but even to his imperfect father. And that story of loyalty and standing by someone, just on a personal level, just has always stood out to me. So maybe not so spiritual, but Jonathan to me is is really a powerful uh, story of loyalty. Yeah, he is a wonderful character. And you see later David paying tribute to Jonathan's Uh lineage, who should be on the throne. Right, that's if, right. If they were in a hereditary system, but that's not what God promised. Yeah, I love that story. I love Jonathan's character. It was so powerful when we were in Israel. You, there's still a piece of the wall in, is it Beth Shan, that the the bones right. of Saul were were put up Saul's on the wall. Saul's body was hung on that wall, yeah, with uh, his sons. And, and you look right across the valley, and there's Mount Gilboa. Yeah, and you can see it where they did that. Uh, you know, one of the stories I really like in First and Second Samuel is uh, just the I, I, the sequences, at least, is the way that David's family ends up working out. And there's a there's another theme for as great a moms as you see in Scripture, you see equally as many terrible dads. Most of the <laughs> most of the heroes in Scripture were not great dads. That David certainly falls into that category. His sons rebel over and over and over again. But it gives you this great picture of David's faithfulness to God. So David doesn't even respond at one point when Absalom takes over. He doesn't even fight. In fact, he's upset that anybody is fighting. And you're like, you're losing your kingdom. But David knows through the whole thing that his kingdom doesn't come from his might. It doesn't come from his power. It comes from God. And these family conflicts not only give a very real feeling to the scriptures. You know, people then have problems. People now have problems. But it also highlights the source of David's triumph, which is his trust in the Lord. Now, with that said, when you get to the end of 2 Kings, as we're starting to turn our attention, or of 2 Samuel, when we're starting to turn our attention to Kings, things aren't going so well for David. In right. fact, you see David make a misstep at the end of 2 Samuel, and you get a little foreboding feeling going into First and 2 Kings, almost a little foreshadowing. In fact, most people tend to think that David's greatest failure was Bathsheba, which is a great failure. Right. But in the narrative, especially in First Samuel through Second Kings, which maybe when we get to First and Second Chronicles, we can talk about this. But David is portrayed in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings very differently than he is portrayed in First and Second Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Now we think they're both true. They're just right. Telling a little bit different story. A different look at the in First angle. and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. The story with Bathsheba is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's morally a big deal, but in right. the literature, it's not a big deal. 
The big deal is the census. Yes. If you were to say what what is the big turning point? What is the sin that marks David's life? It's the final chapter of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census that God has told him not to take. You see in verse 10 of chapter 24 that David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And as a good reader, as a thematic reader, you're thinking, oh no, this yeah. is not a good Cue sign. the sinister music. Yeah, there's yeah. very foreboding music, and when To Be Continued comes on the screen at the end of this chapter, you know that things are not going to go well for Israel. You know, then this is a little, at this point you go, this is a little reminiscent of Saul. You know, in other words, he knows what God told him to do, but for whatever reason, he doesn't exactly do it. Yeah, and and David, we'll we'll just leave this uh, for you to read. David responds very differently than Saul. That's and, and that that's makes the key. a huge difference. And you see that at the end of this book. But it is foreboding for Israel corporately as you head into First and Second. Right. And I would say my second favorite thing in this is David's answer. If, you, if you're not uh, curious now, you should be. David's answer to God is one of my favorite statements of David is what he answers God in this chapter is one of my favorites. Yeah, so read chapter 24. It's a great ending to the book. It's very interesting when you think about the characters and the interaction between Saul and David. And uh, it's a great lead into First and Second Kings. So on that note, we will see you guys next week with First and Second Kings here on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.